Tonight, I'm going to talk about white privilege. February is Black Histories Month, and I wanted to talk about some kind of anti-racist topic sometime in this month. And I'll say that, of course, with white privilege, I, I have very much my own experience. But I, it's, it's also important because I think that my estimation where America is right now, we're so divided and just stuck on, on the conversation around race. And I think a lot of what is keeping America stuck is the fact that so many people are leaning on their white privilege. So a few things I'll say by way of introduction. Um, first, I'll say that in my understanding, anti-racist work and DEI work constitutes a yoga. That is to say, a spiritual discipline. In many ways, it's the yoga of our time. Um, and there are a few reasons for for specifying this. Of course, other other yogas would be, you know, like meditation or a, a breathwork practice or something like this. Um, first of all, it, it points to the dignity of this, this work. And in particular, if you think about it, like, not that it would happen in this lifetime, but what would it mean in this lifetime for me to be 100% anti-racist, to, to reach the goal? It would mean that I'd be able to love all human beings equally. I'd be able to accept everyone without any kind of bias. And that, in many ways, is, is a goal that sounds a lot like Christian sainthood or Buddhist enlightenment. You know, so in other words, it's, it's, pointing, it's pointing towards something very lofty. Ultimately, it's about love and about our capacity for love. Um, I'll also say referring to it as a, as a yoga highlights the fact that it demands a lot of commitment and it's going to be confronting for us, you know, I mean, something like meditation. There are times that, you know, my meditation is peaceful, but times that I'm face to face with my demons. And that's just, that's the nature of, of meditation or any kind of spiritual practice. It'll bring you face to face with your demons at some point, you know. And finally, if people are doing this work, if they're really pursuing anti-racist work in a, in a disciplined way, of course, it's going to transform their, their experience of life. And they're going to get to the point that they're able to make statements that make, perfectly sen make perfect sense to them and the other folks who have done the work, but make no sense or very little sense to people who haven't done the work. You know, like... As a meditation person, if I'm, I'm saying, you know, really, I realize that, you know, for any person, all their conflicts are really about a conflict with themselves. You know, and other people who meditate might, might agree with that, but someone who's done no meditation might, might make no sense to them, you know. I'll also say on the topic of privilege, um, a lot... For most of this talk, I'll be, I'll be talking primarily about white versus black. But of course, the, 
the picture in America is much more complicated, much more nuanced. Um, many Latino folks, many certainly uh, um, Native American folks, many other brown people have many of the same disadvantages that black people have, not all. In some cases, the challenges are different. And I think Asian Americans are in a particularly interesting place in the, in the privilege conversation because Asian Americans tend to have some, if not most, of the privileges that white people have, but racism from white people is still directed to them, you know? And so they're, they're caught in this kind of in-between place in some ways in the, in the conversation on privilege. And again, before many things I have to specify, even before I start talking about white privilege, I want to talk about this word racist. In our modern time, the word racist has a lot of, it has tremendous negative emotional charge. No one wants to be called racist. And even people who have explicitly racist ideas, they try to disconnect, you know, well, I'm not really racist. I just believe blah, 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 you know, this kind of thing. Like nobody want, nobody embraces that term. And in this way, it's analogous to the term sinner. In medieval Christianity, it has that, that same charge. And the interesting thing is that, of course, in the medieval Christian worldview, that was a worldview in which it was very much cultivated, everyone's a sinner. You know, and that in traditional Christianity, that, that has been the story. Everyone's a sinner, and then the conversation proceeds from there. Then there's God forgiveness and grace and all that. But that, that's a hard, you know, how can I say? We've, we've fallen away from that kind of perspective about the word sinner. Um, and so people who are doing anti-racist work say everyone is racist, you know, and that's a hard thing for people to hear. Um, a similar term is white supremacist. Now, this is a term when we hear this term, you know, we think of, skinheads carrying Nazi flags and, you know, shouting out all kinds of hateful things. In other words, we think of a caricature, an extremist caricature, and it's very easy for white America to look at that and say, well, I don't do that, so that must not apply to me. Um, white supremacist culture is simply culture, just it's simply a worldview that centers or privileges white people. That's all it is, you know? And really white privilege is in many ways how white supremacist culture plays out in ordinary people. In order, you know, ordering people who are not trying to be hateful, they're just trying to live their lives. Ordinary white people. So what is white privilege? White privilege centers the experience of white people. And in many ways, whiteness becomes both universal and invisible. You know, a person with white privilege, they might talk just about 
a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a professor, and never have to specify race. It's just assume those, those people are white, you know? And of course, if, if they're non-white, then you would have to specify, you know, Latino doctor, a black accountant, you know, this kind of thing. You have to specify it. Um, it's almost as if the implicit operating assumption is that white people don't have race. Everyone else has race, but white people don't have race. They're kind of the, the blank standard against which other races are compared, something like this. Um, white privilege is very much about um, centering the experience of white people. You know, so as a white person, I've experienced thousands of small advantages in this system, which is, uh, which is pervaded by systemic racism. There's systemic racism in, in every system in our society. And so I've had thousands of advantages because of that. White privilege makes those advantages invisible. I don't see any of those. I don't see the tilt of the playing field, you know. So it's very easy for me to say, well, I, you know, I got here through, through my hard work, my talent. You know, I deserve the success I have. You know, this kind of thing. And similarly, if I'm looking at people of color, I'm not seeing how the playing field is tilted against them. So then I might be wondering, well, how come those people don't work harder? You know, like this kind of thing, you know. The hardest thing about white privilege is that at least when we start, a lot of it is stuff that we're not aware of at all. And that can be very hard for someone who's who's approaching the conversation skeptically, like, where is it in my life? I don't see it. You You wouldn't see it, you know? And in some ways, it this is part of a much larger tradition in the in the spiritual traditions around the vices that we don't see. You know, we all have vices. You know, we all have whatever selfishness or self-absorbedness or insensitivity, this sort of thing. And there are some vices that we're aware of and there are some that we're not, you know. And the ones that we're aware of, we usually make some kind of allowance for them. We moderate them in some ways. The ones that we're not aware of play out a little more in a free reign fashion, you know, until we become aware of them. And in fact, we have all these teachings um, from the various traditions. There's this great teaching in the Christian Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, um, you know, you see, you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't see the log in your own eye. And you want to remove the speck in your brother's eye before you remove the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, remove the log from your own eye before you worry about the speck in your brother's eye, you know, and really, really pointing to the problems that we have that we don't see. Um, and of course, a part of that is that the vices that that are my unconscious vices, the people around me see them, you know, and I see the unconscious vices of everyone else around me, you know, so this is why feedback can be so important. Um, but returning to the, to white privilege, how does someone, if a white person is beginning this conversation, how do they begin? You know, how do you get into this? Well, at this point, there's been several books that have been written, 
you know, you don't have to read every single one, but, but reading a few would be very helpful. Certainly there are white people who have thought a lot about this and who want to talk about it, you know. And so, it, you know, to some extent it's about finding those circles. I mean, I think anyone with a corporate job has, has been through some kind of DEI training at this point. So, you know, there are plenty of resources made available to people. Um, and what is often true is that there are predictable patterns in the way that white privilege plays out. Um, and once we start to see these patterns, then, then, then we can, then the world starts to make sense in a different way. So I'm going to read a list. This is from a woman, Tima Okun, who made this, this bullet-pointed list of, of characteristics of white privilege, characteristics of white supremacy culture. The first is perfectionism. You know, needing to be perfect, judging people against a perfect standard, you know. And, and part of what goes along with that is if the person fails, that person is a failure. The person, you know, like, you know, condemning, condemning people for their failures, this sort of thing. Second is a sense of urgency. It's really interesting, you know, what times in your life do you have, you know, sort of a head-generated sense of urgency? You know, and isn't it urgency that precludes having conversation and connecting with people around you? The next one is defensiveness. Um, and it's funny, you know, again, as a white person, because of the tilted playing field, maybe there are 10,000 advantages I have. But if any one of those advantages starts to be rolled back or, or modified in some way, white people get defensive about, hey, you know, this is, this is anti-white, you know, this kind of thing. Um, Again, because all of those other advantages are, are invisible. So if one is taken away, it looks like something big is being taken away. You know, this kind of thing. Um, worship of the written word. And that's a little more, that could be a little more in a, in a professional context, the importance of worship of the written word. Um, but very interesting, like what, you know, obviously... Obviously, ancient Western cultures produced lots of writing. Ancient African cultures produced little writing, you know, and, and all the value judgments about cultures that had lots of words or cultures that expressed themselves in other ways, you know. The next one is only one right way. You know, there's only one right way to do such and such and judging people who do it a different way. Um, and in particular, when norms in the white community differ from say norms in the black community, then, then this comes into effect. Like, why are they doing it? Not the right way, you know, this sort of thing. Um, it was a, a stunning example of this a few weeks ago 
when um, Fonnie Willis was on trial, she was being questioned about her, her relationship with Nathan Wade, and they were asking, you know, it, it appeared that Nathan Wade was, was spending all this money and she was benefiting from it. She said, no, I paid back in cash. And at first, the white, the white prosecutors were kind of dumbfounded like this. Well, what do you mean you paid back in cash? You know, and she was explaining, I, you know, my whole life, I keep cash around in my house. I always have large amounts of cash for things like this, you know. And, and it was something that they didn't understand. And there was this kind of, you know, this implicit like, you know, why, why would you do something strange like that? You know, and not appreciating that it that it's coming from a different perspective entirely. Later on, Farney Willis's father testified and he corroborated, he said, you know, something, I've kept cash my whole life. Also, I taught my daughter to do this. I should give her her first cash box, you know. So again, one right way to do things. Paternalism, that's a big one, you know. Paternalism, you know. The white person saying, here's what I think would make black people happy. You know, here's what I really think would make black and white people get together better. You know, this kind of thing. As if I can step out of the system and give some kind of judgment from sort of, you know, some, you know, lofty place above everyone. Either or thinking. And again, you know, it might be a little more applicable to decisions in a professional environment, but but strict either or dichotomies, you know, either this or that. You're a good person or you're a bad person. You're, you know, you're this kind of person or you're that kind of person. Um, the next is power hoarding, you know, pointing to either the person who is in power, who is you know, they're making all the decisions or the, the people who are, you know, supporting the person in power. Well, he's, that's the person in power, so we ought to follow him, you know, this kind of thing. Fear of open conflict. This is a big one. This way that um, anger is demonized and, you know, certainly in professional environments, but in, in a number of environments, you know, Everyone's supposed to be nice, nice, you know, and if you have a disagreement, you should you be able to respect it in a quiet, you know, express it in a quiet, respectful way, you know, this kind of thing. And this this fear around conflict, um, which, of course, shuts down more emotionally charged issues. Individualism. The whole idea that I'm responsible for my own life. You know, all my successes, this is my own hard work, my own talent that got me here, you know, and no understanding of all the advantages that I might have had because the playing field was tilted in my direction, you know. Another one is, you know, the I'm the only one, I'm the only one that understands this, I'm the only one that can do this. Um, this kind of exceptionalism around oneself. Objectivity, the myth of objectivity. You know, I'm looking at the world objectively. Objectively, here's what I see. And again, it's as if I could somehow, I myself could somehow 
step onto some sort of solid ground outside of everyone else's experience and judge it, you know. And the final is right to comfort. You know, and it, it's fascinating because in, in so many conversations with white people around race, it is such a powerful trump card for the white person simply to say, I'm getting uncomfortable. I don't want to have this conversation anymore. Like, you know, they can close the conversation down simply by saying that they're uncomfortable. You know, and, and so this is tied into a much larger concept that is part of white privilege, and that is white fragility. White fragility, white people are, you know, one of their best, their best defenses is they, they kind of crumble in the face of a challenge of race. You know, I can't handle this. This is too much for me, you know. And, and therefore, if you keep on pushing, you're the aggressor, you know, this kind of thing. Um, I, think, I think these have become more pronounced over the past 50 years. And I've, I've talked about it a lot. I think that, that all adults, all adults who are alive now, including myself, I've talked about how we're all, we're probably the most spoiled group of adults that have ever been alive on the planet. And there, there's a way that, that all of us have, have all kinds of ways to make our life as comfortable as possible. You know, I just want to listen to the music that makes me comfortable. I just want to read what makes me comfortable. You know, all of this. And so it really plays up the problem of white fragility and, and the, the whole defense around white people want to be comfortable. You know, and again, thinking about framing this as a spiritual discipline, you know, if I'm going to do meditation, I'm not going to be comfortable every day meditating. Some days I will be comfortable. Some days it's going to be confronting and challenging. And confronting and challenging is exactly how growth feels, you know. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. the old days when I could just do apple C and apple V. Now everything is mouse-driven because of my hands. Okay, there's the quote sheet. So I have the quote from the gospel at the top. I found this list, examples of privilege, and this is, this is really all kinds of privilege. Being able to assume that most of the people you or your children study in history classes and textbooks will be of the same race, gender, or sexual orientation as you are. Assume that your failure will not be attributed to your race or your gender. Assume that if you work hard and follow the rules, you will get what you deserve. And of course, if you don't get what you deserve, you have the right to complain about it, you know. You will succeed without other people being surprised and without being held to a higher standard. You can go out in public without fear of being harassed or constantly worried about physical safety. 
You will not have to think about your race or your gender or your sexual orientation or your disabilities on a daily basis. And this, this is another example of white privilege. White people don't have to think about race. White people get to choose whether they move toward the conversation on race or stay away from it, you know. Whereas people of color don't, don't have the privilege of choosing race. People of color get hit with racism, whether they like it or not. Like even when they're sick of it, they still experience racism, you know. And in many ways, it's, it's, it's so much like the difference between folks in California and folks in New Jersey with respect to snow. You know, and of course, with global warming, not a whole lot of snow is falling anywhere now. But, but back in the good old days in Jersey, you'd get snow all winter. Even when you were sick of snow, you'd get more snow. You know, and snow would just happen and you'd have no choice about it. In California, people go to the snow, you know, and depending on whether you like the snow or don't like the snow, you get to choose how much you go to the snow, you know, and it's exactly that same relationship, you know, people of color, racism happens to them. White people get to choose how much they think about it, how much they grapple with it. So below those examples, I have the, the bulleted list that I went through from Tema Ukun. Two quotes from Rumi. The first, the satiated man and the hungry man do not see the same thing when they look upon a loaf of bread. And that's certainly true, but with exactly that same logic, we could say the white person and the black person don't see the same thing when they look at America. You know, exactly the same logic. Rumi said also, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. And this is really profound. It's, um, I mean, especially with respect to this topic, because any, any way that white privilege is playing out against me, that is something preventing from me, preventing me from loving others, it's preventing me from acting in a loving way in the world, you know? And so that the work of love, it, if, if love is what I'm prioritizing, it's absolutely essential to confront my white privilege, you know? Dwight Eisenhower said, we must be willing individually and as a nation to accept whatever sacrifices may be required of us. A people that values its privilege above its principles soon loses both. The poet Amran Ivanov said, not only must the most privileged feel that they are brothers and sisters of the most destitute, but the most destitute must feel as well that something within them makes them equal to the greatest sages and geniuses. A high ideal. James Baldwin, a man for whom I have tremendous respect, said, any real change implies the break of the world one has, as one has always known it, the loss of all that gave one an identity, the end of safety. <clears throat> and at such a moment, unable to see and not daring to imagine what the future may bring forth, one clings to what one knew, 
or dream one possessed. Yet it is only when a man, without bitterness or self-pity, is able to surrender to a dream he has long ch- surrender a dream he has long cherished or a privilege he has long possessed that he is set free. He has set himself free for higher dreams, for greater privileges. Thich Nhat Hanh says quite simply, you are not an observer, you are a participant. And of course, Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about life in general. You know, we're not observers in life, we're a participant. But notice that it, it cuts very differently when we think about not life in general, but, but the very specific experience of life, namely being a white person confronting issues of race. I am not an observer. I am a participant, you know. Peggy McIntosh, who has written quite a bit on this, says, Privilege exists when one group has something of value that is denied to others simply because of the, the group they belong to, rather than because of anything they've done or failed to do. Access to privilege does not determine one's outcomes, but it definitely is an asset that makes it more likely that whatever talent, ability, or aspirations a person with privilege have will result in something positive for them. Pema Children said, fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. Something that I think this, this culture has really forgotten. Paula Rothenberg said, white privilege is the other side of racism. Unless we name it, we are in danger of wallowing in guilt or moral outrage with no idea how to move beyond them. It is often easier to deplore racism and its effects than to take responsibility for the privileges some of us have received as a result of it. Once we understand how white privilege operates, we can begin addressing it on an individual and institutional basis. Jack Cornfield said, To undertake a genuine spiritual path is not to avoid difficulties, but to learn the art of making mistakes wakefully, to bring to them the transformative power of our hearts. And really all of us, I believe, have to do the anti-racist work and bring to that the transformative power of our hearts. Michael Kimmel said, To be white or straight or male or middle class is to be simultaneously ubiquitous and invisible. You're everywhere you look. You're the standard against which everyone is measured. You're like water, like air. People will tell you they went to see a woman doctor, or they will say they went to see the doctor. People will tell you that they have a gay colleague, or they'll tell you about a colleague. A white person will be happy to tell you about a black friend, but when that same person simply mentions a friend, Everyone assumes that person is white. Sharon Salzberg said, Sometimes kindness takes the form of stepping aside, letting go of our need to be right, and just being happy for someone else. Adam Rutherford said, When you have only ever experienced privilege, equality feels like oppression. You know, and again, as this defensive thing moves toward equality, means that white people are losing some of their privilege and, and they can react with, well, this feels anti-white, you know, this sort of thing. 
Ijeoma Oluo says, You have to get over the fear of facing the worst in yourself. You should instead fear unexamined racism. Fear the thought that right now you could be contributing to the oppression of others and you don't know it. But do not fear those who bring that oppression to light. Do not fear the opportunity to do better. And the final quote is from an article. It's a passage from an article in the New York Times about 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago, actually. And it was about a black woman who was married to a white man and they had gotten divorced. So she said that my white ex does not grapple with race. He would not dispute. He does not care to read, think, or talk about it. And he wondered why I did. My ex believed I always went looking for race, but I didn't. Race came looking for me. And when it did, I would stand and call its name. When officials in our inner ring suburb talked about closing our, quote, borders against a wave of non-resident students sneaking into our schools. When a white woman at my gym reached up uninvited and petted my locks like she was petting a dog. When my sick mother received one level of medical care and my ex's sick sister received another. At such times, he tried to understand my feelings, but he did not share them. And even talking about it made him uncomfortable. It's a dividing line as any in America, those who grapple with race and those who do not. 